Welcome to the Vincast, Australia's only podcast dedicated to the world of wine. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you may or may not know that I actually create other forms of digital wine communication, uh, including my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, uh, or one word. Uh, I regularly update uh, the, the channel with videos uh, under Let's Taste banner, um, where I just open up a bottle of Australian wine and share my impressions of it without giving it a rating or you know trying to get too technical about it. Uh, but I also uh, have been creating other videos, including uh, chronicling my winemaking experiences this year under the Intrepid Winemaking series. Uh, and I've also just posted up the first of a couple of videos uh, about my experiences at the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show in Mildura this year. Uh, so please do check out the Intrepid Wino YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe so you can uh, see videos as soon as they become available uh, and like a couple of videos, maybe leave a comment or two. Uh, but uh, I'd love for you to, to come and check that out. So thank you guys for listening to this episode and thank you for checking out some of my other content. Episode 110 of the Vincast, I chat with Ed Carr, Australia's premier sparkling wine producer responsible for such incredible sparkling wine brands as House of Arras, Yarraburn and Sir James. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and uh, I have had a pretty good run of late uh, recording episodes with some really incredible uh, people involved in the wine industry uh, in Australia, and also um, for an upcoming episode, someone from New Zealand. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to share some fantastic stories from people uh, who are involved uh, in a really profound way in the wines that uh, you enjoy and love. Uh, so one person that I've uh, definitely wanted to talk to for a long time, uh, and, you know, partly it's because of my experience working for Domaine Chandon Australia and, you know, particular love of champagne, uh, is Ed Carr, uh, who is, uh, if you haven't heard of him, uh, but you, you may uh, have drunk one of his uh, sparkling wines. He works for Accolade Wines uh, and is responsible for um, probably the, the finest sparkling producing house in Australia, House of Arras, which uh, is, you know, is focused on Tasmanian fruit, considered to be the best uh, for sparkling wine. Uh, and uh, Ed joined me when he was recently in Melbourne. Uh, we talked about his background uh, and uh, his philosophies about sparkling wine. So I do hope you enjoy uh, my chat with Ed. If you do, please stick around to the end so you can find out how to get in touch with both of us. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Ed, thank you very much for making some time whilst you're here in Melbourne. At uh, you know, We're heading into a pretty busy time of the year, um, but it looks like we're starting to get a little bit better weather, so definitely sparkling wine uh, drinking kind of weather. But thank you very much for being on the Vincast. Oh, that's fine. Thanks, James. It's, yeah, it's good to be here. The sun's out. It's always uh, nice. South Australia had a bit of a storm last week. so uh, Yeah, it was pretty, pretty harsh uh, yeah. from what I hear. So it's nice to see some clear, some clear skies. Yeah, there was a bit of... Um, damage around the place i've yet to go through the riverland and the sun and raise you to see what's happened but, yeah um, well, i was just there for the alternative yeah. varieties wine show visited some some vineyards up there so um you know my heart really does go out to all of the growers and producers up there but uh uh usually i on on my podcast i start every episode asking my guest if they can remember if there was a, a particular incident in their life um, that made them think about wine in a different way that, that led them on the path to a wine career or if it was just sort of a, a, a gradual thing and then all of a sudden, oh, I'm working in the wine industry. Yeah, mine was more of a gradual thing for sure. I um, have a degree in chemistry and microbiology oh, okay. and I started um, in the dairy industry for a while. This is ancient history, I must <laughs> add. And, um, yeah, it's, um, I started with that role in a quality assurance 
laboratory in a wine industry, which was actually Seaview Wines at that stage. Yeah. And with their big focus on sparkling, but also being in a smaller wine um, winery itself, I actually just started to get more and more involved in the sparkling wine process. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, it's yeah, it's been a slow burn in that sense to get into it. Um, but you did have that previous sort of combination of the science with the agriculture industry if you're working sort of in in the milk industry yeah it was certainly the science lead in um okay you know people say is one making an art or a science i'd lean heavily towards the science side I sure think. I, I think you have to rationalize everything and uh put science and you know organization <laughs> behind there are it. a lot of processes involved yeah yeah it's a logistics um operation at times and we have a lot of people in some very good teams all over the country yeah um and yeah you just got to actually physically make it work too mm-hmm. where, where are you from originally um i'm a pom i was born in england um on the east coast came out to australia in the mid 60s um yeah why and when and all this happened, you know, it, it's just con- conjecture now. My parents decided to make that uh, make that call mm. and uh, ended up in a satellite town just outside of Adelaide. Never even thought about the wine game. Um, Were they into wine at all? No, my father was a watch watchmaker and jeweller, had oh. his own business. Okay. Um, so probably had, needed to have a steady hand, so <laughs> yeah, didn't imbibe much? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> literally uh, not into any sort of beverage much at all not even tea oh tea yes plenty of tea and tea and coffee but um tea please we're british yeah (laughs) alcohol was restricted to ports and sherries mainly at night fair enough but i mean that's to a certain extent was there's a reflection of that time as well yeah absolutely that's what most people drank if they did drink um and so you grew up just outside of adelaide did you study at university in adelaide as well yeah i did i um didn't really know what to do, so I did chemistry and microbiology in food um, science. Okay, that sounds a little bit strange because for me, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I studied arts. Yeah, because arts you can do almost anything, but I don't know what I do, so I'll do chemistry. Were you were you proficient at, in sciences and in, in at school? I wasn't bad at sciences. I was uh, not maths, but I could do physics. I was pretty good at physics for some reason, which was mainly maths. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, chemistry and Micro, I really sort of fell into a bit. Okay. Was there a particular reason why you sort of liked the chemistry side of things? Uh, I wasn't a fan of organic chemistry. I don't think um, anybody <laughs> was. But, um, no, it's, uh, I don't know, it just seemed practical. Sure. Um, and the microbiology side led into, well, colleagues of mine at the time, you know, went to brewing, went to food manufacture. That's where I sort of thought I'd end up. But um, it just turned turned out to be the wine game right okay um and i would have thought that you know at that time there was sort of growing industries particularly in agriculture and was there sort of uh, a demand for um chemists and microbiologists it was strange because i got employed in the seaview winery um as a microbiologist um norm walker norman john walker was there at the time yeah and um he uh he had some troubles with secondary fermentations and for some reason they believe some guy green out of university could come in and fix their secondary bottle ferments, wow. which which we ended up doing and that was a great learning curve. But, um, yeah, it, it, it was as simple as that. These things just happen and, um, you know, you sort of step into somewhere and it leads to the next one. So back at that time, was CV making method traditionnel or were they making yeah, transfer see, or they, no, were, they, were, they were, uh, having secondary fermentation in a bottle. CV brand was actually an industry sort of leader at that time. There's um, Seppel, I guess, had had the lead in terms of cold climate in, with the with that with those sort of companies. Warren Randall was there at the time with mm. Seppel, um, and um, pushing into the cooler climates around Great Western and Drum, Drumborg and Tumbarumba. Yeah, um, Shandon. Was just starting. Yeah, I mean, this was eighties, mm, um, late eighties, mid mid to late. Yeah, yeah mid eighties, I guess, with Shandon coming on the scene. I don't know the exact year, um, but Seaview was a massive brand. It was um, it was all traditional method. We used to you know, do, I'm guessing, five million liters. That's traditional pretty... method. It was all set up for big volume 
Where was it being processed? It ended up being processed at Nuripa. They built a shed there. The the purchase of the then uh, would have been Win Wine Growers um, was from um, Penfold's Wine Group, and they ended up not building the um, the cellars at the back of um, McLaren Vale, like mm. Ranella Moore, uh, mm. but they moved them up to New Ripper at the back of the um, Penfolds building up there. Mm, even warmer. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and so you you came in and you were looking very much at the chemistry and microbiology of things and, and so it was a, a job essentially at that time? Yeah, it was in in, <laughs> in in a sense, but sort of interesting. But I, I'd saw myself keeping the white coat on and staying in that sort of QA chemistry side of it. Yeah. But again, being a smaller operation, even though it was big in a sense, but uh, the winery I worked at was reasonably small. Um, right. I just got involved in the um, in the day to day wine winemaking and became an assistant winemaker without being an an assistant winemaker. If that makes sense. Yeah. And and was it um, hard work to to start off there and you know looking at all the different base wines and having to kind of almost reverse engineer thinking about I, I need to look at something that has to go through a number of other processes before it's a finished wine and you know including aging on lees and stuff like that was that pretty hard to to learn? Well, we did what we did like with our new style of wines as well. We just went back to basics and said. What do we need? Oh, we need Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Where do we want to grow them? For what price? Price point. Right. So it's been very much, um, yeah, just a repeat of that process, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So you've sort of always been a, a sparkling winemaker. Did, have you ever dabbled in any other types of? Not wine officially. Making? I was never responsible for any. No. Um, let me think. Uh, with the CV Winery, which is at the back of. Ranella, which is now a suburb, um, I was a little bit involved in whites and reds, but basically as a just with an overview. Mm. Uh, then I moved up to New Europe in uh, the mid-'80s and went into the Seaview Cellar there. So that was my first time of really being um, part of the winemaking scene itself. Right. So five million litres... How many different base ones are we talking about? Um, it was a big blend. I mean, Seaview Brut um, was, uh, we took it to nearly a Pinot Noir Chardonnay blend. Um, wow. Mainly warm climate. Okay. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was moving on and there was a range of premiums. So um, only a few blends, really. I mean, it was a very simple uh Industry time, I guess. Sparkling yeah, yeah. hadn't really come on with the multitude of brands and styles you've got. I mean, Yellow Glen was just coming on the scene and Yellow Glen was a very different kettle of fish to what it is now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those brands have evolved in their own various ways. Now, Australia is one of the largest consumers of sparkling wines and champagne, um, but back then were, was there a lot of sparkling wine being consumed in Australia? Was, that, was it a, a really growing market for it? It was growing, um, but you know it was very much focused on the warm region, non-classic variety brands. Okay, um, CV being one of them in those early days. Um, right. I'm talking a lot about CV. I should change, but there was other brands. There was several great Western Lindemann Imperata. This is going back to you know, say ancient times, but <laughs> um, they were very commercial, mainly non-classic variety wines. It was right. just the start of the focus and. I guess that's what I thought was exciting about the sparkling wine industry. It hadn't hadn't evolved as much as red and white table wines had um, done. Interesting, and I, I I kind of think of them partly as a product of all the the pioneers of of white wine production, like like Tony Jordan, you know, obviously in Dapachando yeah. and Brian Crozer and the work they did with you know reduction and protecting you know you know from oxygen that kind of thing. I would think that. The quality of sparkling wine really probably would have improved a lot in the eighties and nineties. Um, do you know what the proportion was back then, as far as the different methods of, of um, sparkling wine production? Uh, transfer was huge part of the bottle ferment. There wasn't a lot of tr- traditional method, only okay. in, in a very small, small volumes. Yeah. So a huge amount uh, was transfer, yeah, because even things like Sepulchre Great Western was tra- transfer method. It was all bottle 
bottle fermented. See, that, that seems like double handling to me. Um, well, I'm, they're trying why. to make the best of not such a good resource, I suppose. But sure. it was the industry at the time. Okay. You know, um, with a lot of people. I mean, Shandon made the lead in cold climate in this state, I guess. Um, I don't think I'm doing anybody else a dis- disservice. Um, Andrew Perry was looking at uh, ta- Tasmania very closely. Jance uh, wrote a Heemskirk thing had started. Warren was Warren Randall was doing a lot of good work with Sepult, and he you know sort of put Tumbarumba on the map. I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was all starting to happen. Mm. So, um, where did you head to after Seaview, and and we sort of thinking about bigger and better things? Um, Seaview was ticking along really nicely. It was a Seaview Kilawarra brand, um, and Kilawarra, then Kilawarra that's a brand I haven't heard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. These things come out of the wood woodwork, don't they? Um, and then. Um, yeah, there was another, there was another merger, and I'm not sure which way the money went. But Sepult became part of that group, mm-hmm. and then this classic decision of where are you going to make all these wines, and it ended up that everything sparkling was moved to Great Great Western. Yes, and that was um, I left just before that happened. So uh, December '93, I left that group, and. Um, uh, Tim James and Peter Dawson offered me a job at Hardy's. Yeah, okay. And said, uh, we have Sir James only. It's uh, the brand screaming along. We can't make enough of it. But, you know, we also want to diversify our sparkling and become, you know, have a greater part of that market share. So at that time, what sort of sparkling brands were under the, the Hardy's kind of uh, portfolio? Um, Sir James is the main one. Right, and that was an immense success. It was Tom. Tom I was, Newton. I was sorry. I have to say, I always liked that that brand name. You know, yeah. when, I, when I started my career at Liquorland, yeah. I always liked to say, "Ah, oh, Sir James." <laughs> yeah. Well, they, I, I, you know, I just came in when it was just absolutely booming, and um, you know, the sales were ten times their initial forecast. So, wow, we were really pushed to find the stock. So, but, so sparkling wine was sort of booming in the nineties. Yeah, that was one of the big brands. Bottle ferment. Um, you know, um, so where was Sir James being produced at that time? Uh, at the Ronella Winery. Okay, right. Yeah. Oh, so, say Tom Newton, who's now the group uh, white winemaker, right, uh, was in charge of that at the time. And so there wasn't necessarily someone in Hardy's specifically focused to sparkling wine. No, no. And and so you were the first person, and you have been that person yeah, since, since then. Yeah. So I started. Vintage 94, which was then a company called BRL Hardy. Right. Yeah. Now, obviously, it's... Then it went to Constellation. Changed well, well, then it went to Hardy Wine then. Company, then to Con- Constellation, now um, Accolade. Accolade, of course. Yeah. Uh, and so, were you being brought in with a specific idea or just come in and just look after all the sparkling wines? Um, both, I guess. Sure. Um, you know, Tom really needed his time to focus on white White wine. Yeah. Um, so this was very much the time when wine in general, Australian wine in general, was being was booming. The export markets were starting to really open up, so they needed more feet on the ground, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and more sort of specialised in a sense. I think yeah. it was the time. I'm a big believer in specialised to certain styles. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, again, it was Tim James, Peter Dawson, um, you know, said, well, you know, we we are a big player in the field, uh, but we don't play hard enough in the sparkling wine sector. So mm-hmm. let's look at what we do at the top end, but also, you know, diversify, have more brands with us, like with a sparkling uh, line in them. Right. So it was all styles, all price price points, really. Okay. So when you started with with Hardy, um, there was Sir James. Yeah, and there was a brand called Courier. And okay, oh, yeah, that was basically it. They're just um, Sir James was the you know instantly the leading brand, it just took off so quickly, right? And it had television ads as well at that stage, so it was just booming. Wasn't that, a, wasn't that an amazing time yeah. when you could actually advertise wine brands online <laughs> on, on TV? I, I think pretty much Wolf Blast and Penfold's the only ones who have it now, but uh, mm. so. Uh, even before that, you probably would have had the opportunity to head out to different regions in Australia, different states, 
uh, and you started to look a lot more at, at the cooler climate. There was still there was a lot more understanding about the benefits of cool climate. Uh, great production for sparkling yeah. wines. Yeah, certainly. Even back in the Penfolds Group days, I did my first trip to Tasmania in '88. Right. Um, and I, I only looked at this recently, but back at that time, there was only like 46 hectares of vines. Yeah. In Tas. Yeah. Oh, that's just unbelievable. Not like, surprising. It was hard to find them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we started to look there, started to look at Tumbarumba and then I moved companies and I really just took that and just rolled it into the new company because it sure. was what they wanted as well. They wanted to be in the top end of town. Yeah. So we looked at, um, Adelaide Hills, Tumbarumba, Yarra Valley, cause they already owned the, um, Yarraburn vineyards. Um, but there was no Yarraburn sparkling wine? No, well, they didn't own the vineyard. They, they actually, they owned the Hoddle Creek vineyard. Hoddles Creek, which was um, which was an independent grower, which they bought, and then pretty soon after I started, they bought the Yarraburn brand off David Fife, mm-hmm. and that was the start of the Yarraburn brand. Right. Okay. It's one of the. I think that was the first winery I visited. Anyway, yeah, it was actually the first winery to make sparkling, I believe, in the Yarra Valley. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's become a very successful, strong, strong brand for us. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I sold heaps of it when when I was at Liquorland, um, and so and and very much the the focus was on growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay yeah, as much in, as possible in cool cool regions. Yeah. yeah, and and even in the Riverland, we planted um, well Chardonnay was there by the bucket load because of the because the um, table wine um, demand on Chardonnay, but there wasn't much Pinot Noir planted, so we. We planted a lot of hectares mm. um, with growers to support even a brand like Omni. Yeah, yeah. Um, to push the the commercial end of the um, sparkling sector into the right varieties, at least. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you couldn't make cold climate fruit at that price point, but um, you know, the warmer regions did did did, did support those sorts of styles as well. Now, I would hope that most of my listeners, if not all of them, would uh, be very familiar with, you know, very high quality sparkling mm. wine production, you know, growing Pinot Noir Chardonnay, perhaps Pinot Meunier in cooler climates, you know, secondary fermentation in bottle, lees ageing for an extended period of time, disgorging, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, you don't need to explain that kind of thing. I'm, hopefully they will understand it. But as far as the, the production for very large volume and um, sort of lower price point sparkling wines. How do you approach that kind of – because I can imagine that is an extremely difficult task to maintain, you know, as much quality as possible mm. but make sure you're hitting that kind of price point. And, you know, as, as I think you said before we started recording, you know, with a lot of time it's about brand rather than about regionality. So mm. how, how, do you, how did you approach that kind of um, task? Um, with the same winemaking philosophy, really, that you've got to identify the critical path- pathways, all the steps in there, and just um, attention to detail. We do it now. Like uh, we'll start our warm climate harvest probably it's getting earlier every year, but late January, early February, and that'll be at the Stanley Winery at Mildura. Yeah. Um. But basic fundamentals of winemaking, machine harvesting at night to try and get the coolest fruit possible, um, you know, l- looking after the juices in terms of controlled oxidation, getting them chilled very quickly, um, f- work on finings of the juice to get it you know, back um, to the colour and tannin levels that we want. Mm-hmm. Everything's done in very big numbers, but still the fundamentals are the same. Right, okay. Um, getting it, because uh, we're a big... Malolactic fermentation has across most of the styles. So, you know, getting it through primary ferment, getting it through malo, getting it into uh, blends very quickly. Yeah. And then it's all, um, it's not all, but it's predominantly Charmette method. So, okay. bulk, bulk fermentation. Right. So, we can have a vintage wine out by the middle of that current vintage year. Wow. And what, what sort of yields are we talking about, say, per hectare of these kind of vineyards? I would assume it's uh, a bit larger than uh, than your more premium, yeah. cooler climate stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're big vines able to to support bigger crops. Um, sure. And the economics demands that. But um, we look at um, oh, 
low twenty tons per um, hectare is general. Yeah, um, it varies, but we we aim between twenty and thirty, but hopefully in the low twenties. Um, right. Okay. When you started with BRL, uh, the, the the sparkling wines in that kind of price category, have they changed significantly since then? Like, what, what, as far as residual sugar dosage levels, how how dry were they back then? Have they got drier and drier as time has gone on? No, at the commercial level, I think they've probably got just a, a hint sweeter. Really? Um, not much, but they'd most would be between like fourteen and eighteen grams per litre now. Yep. I guess um, younger, more uh, fruit-driven wines uh, just need a little bit more sugar for balance. Sure. A lot of those products were tra- tra- transfer method uh, okay. in uh, Charmant, So Right, okay. Uh, it, particularly for wines in that sort of price category, what do you feel that are the big kind of innovations you've sort of brought to the, that kind of category of sparkling wine? Um. I think in the commercial budget end of town, it's mainly the the use of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Sure. Uh, um, that's one of the key things. We've looked at more um, the use of oak and oak products to get structure in um, some of these wines. Wow. Um, not we don't want oak apparent wines, but um, uh, there's, we want to build texture and structure. So um, commercial products still need to be very much um, flavourful wines. You sure. Know, people need to enjoy drinking them. So, you know, we're trying to build as much into them as we can. Mm-hmm. But it's very much the basics, just um, make a nice, bright, fresh, fruity style, mm. fruitier style, mm-hmm. um, and try to build structure and texture mm-hmm. um, around that. As far as uh, the more premium end of the portfolio for sparkling wines, um, did you go into each kind of different brand uh, and have a, a, a very deliberate idea about what you wanted to do with each of them? Um, each brand was based on regionality. So Yarraburn, we we did have a starved, starved Dog Lane Adelaide Hills brand, which doesn't have a sparkling anymore. But, um, yeah, it was all based on regionality. We had a Horton sparkling from Pemberton. Oh, uh, wow. Yarraburn from Vic, from Victoria. Yeah. It's a James product coming out of Tumbarumba uh, and, of course, what eventually became Aris out of Tas- Tasmania. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, you know, it was always quality-focused, uh, you know, and like of, of, of those more premium sparkling wines, what's the most number of different base wines you might have actually looked at for blending? Tasmania, I think, has evolved to the biggest number. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've probably come out of a Tasmanian vintage with about 35 com- components to yep. work with across three or four wines. Yeah. Um, sometimes the bigger blends are easy. The more cuvées you have to blend from, um, you know, they just roll into each other. Yeah. They're sort of complementary because we, we actually go into vintage with a plan <coughs> that um, – you know, every vineyard patch, we we um, have a perceived end use for it. Right. So it's all planned in that sense. But we can't, we're trying to keep, and this is across the range, trying to keep as much separate as we can so that when it comes to blending, we've got as many options as possible. Sure. But to focus back on Tasmania and um, Aris and Bay of Fires again, to a lesser degree, um, it's all about uh, keeping our premium options separate identifying the good parcels that we think have opportunities for the smaller blends Mm -hmm. Um, just so we can blend after vintage down to 1% or 2% blending levels. Right. So you identified many, many years ago that Tasmania was, um, you know, one of, if not the best place to be growing grapes uh, for the production of sparkling wine and that no doubt played into, you know, establishing the House of Arras. Yeah. Um, were you given sort of free reign with with that? Did they kind of say, "Look, we want you to make an absolutely world class sparkling wine"? It's evolved, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was the original brief. Uh, you know, back in the um, early days when I walked in the door, mm. let's make a premium sparkling wine. Let's make the best we can 
where um, do you want to make it? Really? Okay. So yeah. they they said, Ed, you know, what do you reckon? Yeah. But <laughs> then, <said> <laughs> I mean, it was pretty obvious. Um, you yeah. know, the guys, uh, Andrew Period started production then. Um, Had Shandon, Shandon bought, was, was, they were was buying some, some fruit from down there. Yeah. yeah, yeah was, um, there was one vineyard that they worked with out of Tasmania. Um, That's the Tolpuddle vineyard? Yeah. 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 Um, so I'd, the, I missed the 94 vintage with Tasmania because I only just started there in 94. But from 95 onwards, we started sourcing Tasmanian fruit. Mm. We didn't have a Great brand. vintage, 95. Yeah. For the sparkling wines. Yeah, we were so, I mean, but we didn't have fixed resources. So we were buying people's, can you believe, surplus grapes on the open market. Wow. Um, I can't and, believe there were actually surplus grapes. No, that's probably it's not something you hear about in Tasmania these days. Yeah. And then we brought them back. And this fruit was relatively expensive mm-hmm. compared to what other fruit was and made a bit, well, took some juice back. And um, Peter, Peter Dawson was the man to impress at that stage and mm-hmm. um, showed him the juices. And he said, yeah, I reckon that's probably one of the best sparkling juices that I've ever seen. And we took it through the wine and made the wine. Um, and again, you know, the comments were all very, very positive. Yeah. Um, and it's just been a roll from there. It's just been an, been an evolution. We went to buying from buying fruit on the open market to contracting growers. In two thousand and one, we bought the Bay of Fires Winery, mm-hmm. um, which had its own vineyard. So, that, how many hectares? Uh, hectares. I bet not quite them, but it's around about three three hundred ton of fruit. Right. Okay. So it's a sizable lump, and we're we're expanding that now. So we're we're actually planting Pinamania there. Um, wow. Oh, it's a very cold site, and it suits Pinamania, and sure. we don't have enough Pinamania for what we want to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's now it's a it's a buy on the open market, grow our own fruit contract growers and lease vineyards if we have the opportunity. Sure. So, um, yeah, we're trying every way we can to ex- to expand our Tasmanian resource in a very competitive market. Yeah. As far as the, the production of the wine itself, the wine making, um, what, what do you do different with Aras compared to some of the other more premium brands within the Accolade uh, portfolio? Uh, you know, how, how do you kind of try to add more value to that wine in particular? Well, the resource is more pricey from the start and we've really gone to, you know, get the best um, quality vineyards that we can. So just to go back to Tas- Tasmania, we're not a single sub-region uh, producer, we don't make wine off a single vineyard or mm. out of a single region. So, even though Ta- Tasmania is considered to be one region, um, we we've got a very diverse fruit 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 supply. Yeah. So, Pipers River, Tamar, East Coast, Coal Coal River, Derwent, and a little bit from the Hewen. Um So, yeah, we've looked at every area and are trying to ascertain which. Which areas suit are certain labels, so that's that's the sort of start of it. Uh, in terms of the wine wine making, um, our wine making is very similar across a lot of styles, but we're just letting the terroir express itself. Uh, but in Tasmania, in particular, um, the use of oak as well, very high quality, relatively young French oak in some of our styles. So this is for the primary fermentations. Um, <laughs> I mean, are they age? Are the are the base wines aged in in wood um, for much beyond the ferments? No, we we um, we started off with this sort of project in about '06, um, looking at ways to increase the complexity and structure of our sparkling wines across the range, mm-hmm. the premium range. And um, yeah, we know see high quality, uh, particularly fermentation of Chardonnay in high quality uh, French oak. Um, small uh, format is just the way that we build structure into these wines. Mm. What was the first vintage of Aris that was released? Was it that the ninety five? The ninety five, yeah. The, what? There was some Yarra Valley fruit in that as well. Okay, yeah. so Aris wasn't necessarily originally going to be a Tasmanian no, it was, brand. It was just the best that yeah. we can make. Yeah, 
And then, but by 98, 98 was the first vintage of all ta- Tasmanian wine. And it has been since then? Yeah. Was Aris intended to be a wine or did you have ideas about <laughs> making a number of different cuvées? Again, that's been an evolution. Um, Aris was initially one wine. Um, it was a Chardonnay Pinot Noir. It, correct me if I'm wrong, it was sort of going to be the spark, like the sparkling wine equivalent of Eileen Hardy? Yeah, in that sense. Right, okay. Um, but Tasmania shone so strongly um, and I'm glad we sort of made that choice because I think we've proved ourselves correct. That, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we looked at diversifying our vineyards within Tasmania rather than taking in mainland ones. Sure. So, you know, from the warm parts of the Tamar to the upper Derwent to probably the coldest region is Piper's River. Um, we have a great diversity of supply and the East Coast. So um, yeah, we've diversified our supply but stayed within Tasmania. Yeah, I, I mean, like it was something that, you know, one of the first things that I realised about Tasmania was that you can't consider that whole island as one homogenous kind of climate. You know, there's so many different sub-regions. It, it still boggles my mind why they don't actually separate it up into, into sub-regions. Um, but, you, yeah, I, I could imagine, yeah, that absolutely, you know, with the different grape varieties and, 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 and different yeah. sub-regions, you have a lot of sort of... Um, room to play. Yeah, I like the idea of mentioning sub-regions on labels, but I, I'm still a very strong supporter of just calling it Tasmania at the moment. That's a fairly champagne philosophy, though. Oh, it is in a sense, but I, I think let's let's get people used to Tasmania first. True, um, true. But, um, it is such a strong draw now, um, domestically and internationally. It's Tasmania, just the name is a lot of interest so yeah um i i like the idea of just promoting tasmanian wine at this point fair enough and particularly for you know it being cool climate you know for, for sparkling mm. wine uh you know tasmania has mm. such a strong brand recognition i think now yeah do you think it's been really important that um tasmania as a wine growing region has grown with you you know i would imagine that there, there's the, the amount of fruit that you're able to to work with in Tasmania is significantly more now than it was when you first started, you know, working on Arras. Yeah, there's a lot more fruit. You know, it's um, it's probably up to 1,600 hectares now, I think. Wow, yeah. Um, maybe more. Um, but, you know, from very small beginnings. Um, but it's also very competitive now. There's a lot of other major producers and smaller producers as well with producing very high-quality wines. Mm-hmm. Um, so the demand for fruit is still very high. So the, 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 the prices for fruit haven't really gone down that much? <laughs> Certainly haven't. They haven't gone down. <laughs> no. They would have gone up, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how involved were you with the sort of the, the branding of Aris? Did they involve you at, at any stage in, in that and, and how you wanted to communicate about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Developing a, a brand name is very, very difficult <laughs> because everybody's got a different different opinion. Absolutely. And we certainly didn't want to make it a, um, a tied to a region or a place too much at that stage. Okay. We would have thought maybe different about it now, but um, Aris comes from the dictionary meaning of intricate tapestry. Right. So we thought, well, wine making's a bit of weaving, um, I, weaving I, I, a lot of I things together. Think sparkling wine, yeah. method traditional is is very much a tapestry. <laughs> yeah. So it seemed it seemed to fit um, with what we what we had in mind, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, the name's stuck, obviously, and built some great reputation and rapport across the world. So, um, yeah. but yeah. Um, Coming up with a name that someone else hasn't used, you think you've got a brilliant name, you go to search it. Oh, someone else in Oregon's used that. You know, there's all these sorts of things. It's True. very difficult, actually. Yeah. I mean, we're lucky we've got Google now, but even then that can't, they, yeah. they can't be 100% relied upon. When you launched Aris, was it difficult to kind of get people to understand, uh, you know, about like this is 
the best that Australia can make as far as sparkling wine was was hard. Was it very competitive for you know compared to Champagne, for example? It always has been very competitive and still is um, with regards to Champagne in terms of market rec- recognition. Yeah. Um, and Champ- Champagne has a very long um, history of producing some very good wines, <laughs> also producing some not so good wines too, I suppose. True. Like like any region, um, and generally price is an indication of the, of the quality. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah, it hasn't been easy for the, not just for us, but for the premium sparkling winemakers in general to um, build a market confidence in their product at the higher price price points. Yeah. When, Har- when Aris was first launched, I would assume it would have been 50 plus. Um, yeah, it was around about that mark. Uh, the vintage. We we had one wine which was called a Chardonnay Pinot Noir. Okay. That label evolved into what's now called the Grand Grand Vintage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was again. This has changed over time. That was a four-year-old wine which we thought was a long, long time, um, and we released that late '99. Mm-hmm. Um, we now the Grand Vintage is a minimum seven years on lease. Yeah, because. As we built confidence with the style, we realised that age was going to be such a critical part of making this style unique and world quality. Yeah. That um, we now have, you know, um, the range of wines with the traditional method wines starting at a minimum of four, four years on lease, you know, and then seven, eight, ten, mm. you know, um, which has taken it into an entirely different spectrum and price price points as well. When was that first vintage released? Uh, late 99. 99. Just for the millennium. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, I guess timing probably helped. It was still, you know, in that kind of boom period for Australian wine. Um, but also, was Aris uh, intended for any export markets as well? Um, I mean, it, there's a tiny amount ex- exported now, but we've always been very tight on volume. So um, Sure. And building that resource for a product which is on lease for seven years, yeah, um, takes you a while. So it's we have, we have growth plans, um, but at the moment the domestic market demands most of the production with very small amounts going overseas. Yeah. So being Australia's most celebrated sparkling winemaker, um, you know, winning lots of trophies and stuff like that. Did you have you have you had the opportunity much to spend time in Champagne and do you have particular houses that you prefer their style above others? I've spent very little time in Champagne actually. but Too busy working. Yeah, um, but I do appreciate the wines. Um, I have some certain, certain favourites. Um, but what I like about Champagne in particular is that there's a lot of very good wines and done in very different styles, mm-hmm. and I think Tasmania's achieved that now. If you look at the larger brands across Tasmania, um, people have you know um, matured in the sense that everybody's got their own style now. Okay, and very high quality wines at very different styles, and um, yeah, that's what's really strong about the Tasmanian market now. Mm-hmm. We've learned a lot in a very short space space of time. So if you buy competitive to us brands, you're still getting very good wines, but in a very different style mm. and cons- and consistent style. How has Aris, as far as uh, product range, evolved? Like how many different wines are there that are released under the Aris brand? We have uh, – we started with one. Uh, we have now five traditional method wines. Okay. Uh, we now have the Brutal Eight, which is a multi-vintage Um and then the uh, Grand Grand Vintage and the Rosé and the Blanc de Blanc and the Late Late Disgorge Vintage. How how many years is that on lease? The Late Disgorge Vintage, yeah. minimum ten. Far out. It, well, I suppose it would have been really important to because obviously it takes time to actually build a library. Uh, you know, like fortified wine production. You know, you have to be putting vintages down and, and sitting them yeah. on lease. Was that a really difficult thing to convince the higher ups? Uh, yeah, but it's sort of earned its keep. You know, you've got to have credibility, and I think um, the credibility's come from the show results, from the peer reviews, um, 
for um, you know, just from the media in general. Um, and so we've built confidence. And like the first LD was the 98. Um, you know, we kept some back in a museum just because we wanted to see how it goes. And it got to like eight years old. And we think, oh, it's still looking better every year. Go to marketing and say, what do you think of an LD? Like, we've never thought of that concept. And, um, yeah, let's give it a crack. I mean, it was pretty simple back in those days compared to what it is now. But it was just getting evidence of how these wines perform with age. Yeah. Um, like, last year we re-released the 98 as our 20th anniversary wine. That was like 16 years on Lees. Yeah. Um, and it's bright as a button, you know, and that sort of – takes us to the next thing what are we going to do with museum releases of wines of that age um so it's been i say just a constant evolution step by step but we're very happy with where the age of wine is now um so i guess the aris brand is unique in the sense that the whole range is aged for a very long period of time yeah to global sort of standards sure um you can't just use the champagne Minimum of vintage wine three three years on lease because no one in Champagne releases vintage wines at three years old. They're no. seven or eight years old. To be fair, though, they have huge cellars and they've got you yeah. know lots of wine in previous vintages they can rely upon. I mean, their reserve stocks are incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely for their non-vintage wines and you know for things like Krug, whatever. But um, yeah, that was the rec- recognition that. Um, with um, Aris, which I think is unique, and is in terms of the brand, that to be of global quality, we had to be of equivalent age of wine. Sure. Um, and if you look at current imports, you know, very good quality products, they're, um, they're 06s to 09s. Mm. Uh, with the LD, uh, I'm assuming it's probably not released every vintage. It has to be um, um, other high-quality vintages. There's very few that are missing um, because if we've got enough That's tazzy quality for you, I guess. to... Yeah. If we've got quality to make the grand vintage, chances are it'll we'll, we'll hold some back for the late, late disgorged. Great. Again, it's like feeling the market too. How much can we sell? How much do we keep? Yeah. There's a bit of crystal balling going on there, really. So as the, the, the group sparkling winemaker for what's now Accolade, uh, uh, how, how much of your time do you dedicate to Aris compared to the, the other um, brands within the portfolio? That's a dangerous question to answer, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like to think certain people drive brands. Um, so really within our uh, port, portfolio, Yeah. I like the winemakers that are responsible for those brands to have a lot of autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see it as we're a sparkling winemaking group. We've got a lot of expertise. We can talk amongst ourselves and have regular meetings of what we do, how we do it. Yeah. But I'm really trying to promote a very active policy of maintaining style yep. differentiation. Yep. So autonomy is just great for that. Um, as group winemaker guys, what do you need to make the style that you want to make? Right. I um, hope we're taking that approach, and I think we are. We're very positive on that, but it's got to be a very active process. You can't just be passive because it'll it'll fade a bit. So, really promote individuality and regionality, and, I, and region is the big thing that's going to drive it. So our, our brands will have a lot of regional focus. Yeah. Okay. Excluding Tasmania, yep. do you think that there's somewhere in Australia that is has the potential to be the next big sparkling wine production region? Um, there's some very good wines coming from you know very diverse cold climates. I mean, within Australia, you get cold climate with altitude or latitude or both. Sure. Um, but they're stylistically very different, the wines from Orange there's some brilliant sparkling wine coming out of there, actually, but they're very different structure sure. to the higher latitudes. So um, I don't really see a new region. I just see developments of existing regions that are producing, you know, in in terms of higher latitudes, and I'm going to miss some for sure, but, you know, uh, orange Tumbarumba mm-hmm. uh, regions are very um, different but very good producers. Yarra Valley and Upper Yarra Valley still very strong. Macedon. 
uh, Adelaide Hills, Tasmania, um, all very different wines. Yeah, and I think that's probably part of the exciting thing for yourself, you know, lo- particularly looking at all mm. these different brands. But um, look, um, it's been really fantastic to be able to, to sit down with you uh, and, and hear about, you know, the amazing things you're doing with Sparkling Wines in Australia. Um, I will be sure to to follow, uh, to share all the different social media accounts for Aris. Do you have your own social media accounts? Uh, I, I'm Do you little, use social media much? I'm a little bit of a dinosaur in that regard. <laughs> so um, I just think ethereal about Sparkling Wines um, rather than share it too much at times. But um no, certainly through the brand, uh, lots of opportunity there. Fantastic. But uh, look, thank you again. I'm sure the, the listeners will uh, show their appreciation to you. Okay, thanks. It's been a pleasure. And as always, thank you guys for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Now those House of Arras uh, social media accounts I mentioned, uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, it's at House of Arras. And on Facebook, it's at House of Arras Sparkling. Uh, but make sure you visit the houseofarras.com.au website to find out more about Ed and the incredible wines he produces. You can follow me on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And also the, the Vincast is on uh, Twitter, at The Vincast. Come and visit me on Facebook, uh, which is at Intrepid Wino. Uh, Make sure you hit that like button. uh, And come and visit my YouTube channel, which I mentioned at the start of the episode, which is Intrepid Wino. uh, And come out and come and see some of the videos that I've posted on there. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on uh, any number of different podcast sharing apps and programs. Uh, But the best one is probably iTunes. Uh, Subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, And I'd love to hear from you uh, if you would like to leave a rating and a review uh, because it really does help with the word out about the show. Uh, As always, you can find out all that information at intrepidwino.com because I'd love to uh, hear from you. So you send me uh, an email uh, or message through the website. But uh, until next time, bye.